Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is Liz Marcucci from an organization called Volunteers of Legal Service, or VOLS, V-O-L-S, VOLS. VOLS' mission is to leverage the goodwill, resources, and talents of New York City's leading law firms to provide pro bono legal assistance to low-income New Yorkers. VOLS was founded in 1984 in the wake of developments that echo current events. Reagan-era budget cuts squeeze legal services from two sides. On the one hand, cuts to assistance programs increase the demand for civil legal aid. And on the other hand, cuts in funding for legal services programs dramatically reduce the supply. VOLS works closely with hospitals, schools, senior centers, and other community organizations to integrate pro bono legal assistance into the array of services these organizations already provide. For example, they help mothers in prison maintain visitation with their children. They help senior citizens with advanced health care directives and other essential life planning documents. They help children with asthma by forcing landlords to eradicate mold. Liz is the director of their immigration project. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Liz. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's jump right in. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to Vols? Uh, Certainly, yes. I graduated from CUNY Law School uh, almost, uh, I guess, over just a little over a decade ago. I can't believe how too much time has flown by. So I knew even before I went to law school that I wanted to work in the public interest field. And that very much informed my sort of research into law schools that would support that pathway. Initially, I wasn't sure what area of law would be my focus, but I did have a really wonderful opportunity Uh, at CUNY to explore various areas in the public interest field while I was a student there. So I spent a semester, you know, learning about community economic development and legal strategies to work on those issues. And then I spent a summer interning at a member-led community advocacy group in Brooklyn, um, which is now called Make the Road, um, and does a lot of work that connects legal services and advocacy and is really driven by the the members themselves that are part of the community. And um, I thought that was a really interesting model. And so we were exploring those types of ways that lawyers can support bigger movements to get justice, access to justice for groups of people that are not always able to do that. And I also spent a semester representing claimants who were denied public benefits at administrative hearings. And I got to do that in my second year as part of the very well-recognized clinical program at CUNY. And so I think I don't know if that's something that I, I don't think every law student gets a chance to like have clients and go and in fear in front of an administrative law judge already in second year. So I, I had a lot of hands-on interaction with different areas of public interest law That summer, I interned at the Housing Unit of Legal Services New York. And then finally, my final year, I was sort of wavering between potentially international human rights law and immigrant rights. And so um, I took a course in international human rights law and then uh, did my final year in the immigrant rights clinic where I got to go to immigration court and represent an asylee that was facing removal who was a young child. Um, And so I think that helped me hit the ground running when I finished law school so I could, you know, I had a lot of like skill sets 
that helped me work in in this field, uh, I decided to pursue immigration exclusively, not only because I really felt that my own personality and sort of the way I could interact with clients sort of was better suited my temperament, my interest in storytelling and, and, you know, working with people to advocate for themselves. And it sort of was a real hands-on application of the international human rights law in some contexts, you know, in terms of refugee and asylum law, rather than sort of a lot of sometimes the more theoretical areas that you can work in in the international human rights field. So when I finished, I was sort of trying to seek an opportunity to work in the immigration law field and ended up at a small uh, private immigration firm for a couple of years. And it was actually through my own pro bono contributions when I was at that firm that led me to my position at Balls. So while I was learning sort of the nuts and bolts of immigration law with a firm that had been practicing for 20 or 30 years, I realized I wanted to devote more time, my spare time, to be working on clients who can't afford to pay for private immigration legal services. And I started volunteering with the New York chapter of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And it was through the work that I was doing in evenings, volunteering at clinics in a variety of locations in New York City, that I was introduced to one of the board members of Vols who informed me that they were sort of looking to expand the project here and on the immigration field. And that sort of, it sort of naturally led organically to me starting at Vols part-time and then developing a project that grew into a full-time position and now has three staff members. Thank you for sharing. That's a great story. Before we move on, could you do a little commercial for your law school? So CUNY, for people who aren't familiar, what we're saying is C-U-N-Y. <laughs> right. It's the City University of New York, and they, it's a public interest law school. It was founded under those principles. You know, I read the bios of all the professors there, and a lot of them had been involved in either landmark cases that affected really important areas of different types of public interest areas over the years. And so, you know, I wanted to be in an environment that supported and developed the skills necessary to do that kind of work. So you mentioned that even in choosing a law school, and even before, you knew that you (laughs) wanted to work in the public interest, that you had a passion for access to justice. What do you think in your background or your personality sparked that interest? I think I, 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 I probably have quite a few examples, even from my childhood. You know, I think your history and your background does sometimes inform those choices that you make. And so I am the child of immigrants. They actually immigrated to Canada. Well, my mom came to the United States, but then ended up in Canada. And uh, I'm also the daughter of a minister. And my family fled an oppressive and authoritarian government. And so as a child, like I grew up around people where these were issues that were discussed in my household. You know, my dad helped refugees entering Canada. So those values run deep in my family. And those are the things that have always been important to me. And I think on the flip side, in terms of my skills and my temperament, like why it ended up, you know, I could have easily gone into social work perhaps. 
because of my gregarious nature and my ability to listen to other people and my empathy. However, I also perhaps was a little argumentative as a child <laughs> and a teenager. Um, you know, and I know I got into a lot of debates or arguments, either, you know, fighting for my siblings or kids at school against people I felt were bullying them. And I remember someone in my family once going, if you like arguing so much, maybe you should become a lawyer. And of course, my response was, maybe I will. <laughs> and flash forward, here we are. And, and I do feel right now, we're really feeling an intense culture of bullying, not just the clients that I'm hearing from that are absolutely being affected by the climate in the country and how that's shifted in a really dangerous way these days, but also in terms of you know, a government that's trying to bully lawyers into not standing in in their way or in his way. And so I think more important than ever, we need people who aren't afraid to stand up for what's right. Well, the profession is lucky to have you as a member. Oh, thank so. you. <laughs> that's really sweet. I mean, I'm, I'm not alone. There are so many people that do so much amazing work, and I'm constantly overwhelmed and impressed by the level of commitment that people have to doing this work. And I think on a on another personal scale, like I grew up in a family that definitely struggled financially. And I know that, you know, as my parents were learning English and trying to navigate this new country and these new systems, you know, there were a lot of things in our lives that could have been different or could have been made, you know, there could have been less hardship if we had had you know, access to information that a lot of times low-income families or immigrant families don't have. And so, you know, it took a while for me to sort of reach the point where all of those, that background and sort of the natural trajectory of where I'm at now and, and what my childhood and my teenagers and all of those experiences sort of culminated in me really feeling I'm, I'm in a, and I feel very lucky to be in the position that I'm in and have an opportunity to do this work that is informed by those experiences and tries to be thoughtful about them as we try to leverage uh, access to legal services as a community. Before we laser focus on your immigration work, let's just talk a little bit about Vol's sort of the elevator speech, the, the what's the group's mission, and a little bit about the overview of its various projects. So Vols was founded in 1984, I think on May 1st, and this was during another period of time when the government was threatening and, and actually defunding a lot of legal service providers. There was massive funding cuts. And I, I do want to alert all the listeners that that is in the works again now. And we've made so much progress since then. And, and this is really going to hurt a lot of the families that the services that are provided by legal services organizations are really critical to like quality of life issues like housing, public benefits, immigration. But at the time, partners at law firms in New York and I believe like um, the president of the New York City Bar sort of got together and formed Vols. And this was at a time when pro bono was not what it is today. You know, you had to really work on convincing people the value of doing pro bono, but the intention was to use the re massive resources of the firms to 
sort of bridge the gap between the funding that was being lost at legal services and try to engage more pro bono lawyers at these firms to help New York City residents that were facing um, a lot of like housing issues and different types of issues. Um, and so that's sort of the long ago history of VALS. And so VALS really was a very tiny organization that was you know, working with firms to leverage their resources and provide pro bono legal assistance to a variety of low-income residents in New York City. And so over the last 30 years, Balls has had a variety of small projects that have tried to address those gaps that aren't being filled by the services that are funded by direct service representation by providers like Legal Aid or different organizations of that nature. And so our services are free. And one of the things we pride ourselves on is that we support the law firms to do that work and provide high quality legal services and really give that mentoring and support to those firms that maybe don't have a lot of internal expertise on a variety of issues that are facing, that New Yorkers are facing. And those include matters that range from immigration, housing, and uh, we have a microenterprise project that helps um, entrepreneurs and supports um, CBOs and community economic development. We work with, you know, uh, especially in the last few years when there was like a lot of unemployment and individuals that are being denied unemployment benefits working. Um, that was a newer project that we launched at Vols to help people fight those denials. And um, another project that works with incarcerated mothers um, to preserve their parental rights and um, a life planning documentation preparation for the elderly. And so we've been really striving to bring pro bono legal assistance directly to the clients, like to go out into those communities, doing Know Your Rights presentations at nursing homes or in schools or out in the prisons. And that way that New Yorkers can access legal help when and where they need it most in familiar settings where maybe they already have access to other services. And, you know, we try to do this by building partnerships with senior centers or schools, uh, hospitals, jails, and other community organizations that serve populations that um, maybe are not, don't have a provider in their neighborhood. And that maybe um, organizations that lack the capacity to provide those services on site. That's really helpful background. And let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you and what you do. As the director of the Immigration Project, how do you spend your time? My project formed out of, it sort of um, came out of another project. So I initially came to Vols to help support a children's project that was partnering law firms with schools. And they were seeing a variety of different legal issues and, and immigration kept coming up. And what I started to perceive was a, a real need to provide free legal services on immigration issues specifically that may disrupt a young person's education. And so we have young people who might have the ability to regulate their status or parents who are nervous about their rights or have been defrauded. And so we started establishing partnerships with 20 New York City high schools to provide ongoing free legal services and 
trainings and presentation to create more awareness about the issues for families that can't afford lawyers. Um, so we did, we do staff trainings at schools and out in the community. So I'm definitely a part of doing those things. And I also recruit, train, and mentor volunteer lawyers so that they can be providing high quality legal services. And these are sometimes individuals who don't know that they have a legal remedy available to them, are afraid to actively seek out other types of assistance. And so our model is proactively going into the community and seeking out people who want to either obtain immigration benefits or retain them. And so I'm constantly trying to think of ways to identify individuals that aren't coming forward for help, that really haven't, you know, availed themselves of opportunities that sometimes they're going to lose if they don't talk to a lawyer in time. So we support some of our clients in becoming citizens, either through naturalization and derivation, and anyone who's wanting to affirmatively regulate their status through family members or other humanitarian forms of relief, like special immigrant juvenile status. So when I'm developing those opportunities for pro bono clients, I'm trying now to supervise We had an Equal Justice Fellow with us, luckily, for two years, and we've been able to keep her on as a staff attorney, so she's now doing some of that outreach work that I used to do, and now I'm trying to look at, you know, identifying the unmet needs of the populations that we serve. Um, I serve on committees that are trying to improve the practice of law in this field, so I'm on panels or I'm developing CLEs and trainings connected to ethics or cultural competency, and then the actual nuts and bolts of immigration law that is quite a wide range of topics. So I wear a lot of different hats. And there are only so many hours in the day. So is there there anything that you wish you could be doing more of? You know, if you had an endless supply of time, are there things that you wish you could be focusing on or spending your time doing? I, I wish that I could take more time to write about these, the lessons that we've learned or, or share these success stories, because I do think that, you know, we don't really, like, we don't even take time often to acknowledge, like, this wonderful case. And, and I've, it's always on my to-do list, but then there's someone else who desperately needs help. And so I always prioritize the next thing that we need to get placed or we need to vet or we need to do like background work on. And so there's a part of me that wishes like I had time to sort of help share my perspective or work with a client to share their story if they want, you know, some support to be able to talk about what it meant for them to have access to legal assistance and really help shape the narrative of why this work is important on a on a micro level instead of sort of a broad level, because I do think that's more effective in terms of storytelling. And I never get to write that op-ed for the New York Times <laughs> or anything that is would be helpful, I think, on a, on a broader scale to getting our message out there and, and getting support for the work that we do. That's such a great point. And for some reason, that seems like a luxury, whereas it's really like a necessity, right, in communicating our message. Yeah. And building the tent, you know, kind of like um, educating both internally and externally. and uh, But somehow that falls to the bottom <laughs> of the to-do list. Yeah. Did you ask me if there's something I wish I would do less of? Yes. There you go. Okay. What would I you like to so. do less of? All right. Of? So I think I would like to do less fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think over the years, 
funding for the work that we do because we're not a direct provider. And it takes a lot of resources for us to do the outreach or, you know, develop those relationships with the community-based organizations or other partners that we have to, like, identify clients, you know, get them the information, screen them for possible relief, and then find the pro bono counsel, make that connection, you know, train them, support that process. And that is sort of what I like doing and I enjoy doing. And to sustain that work, it's really hard to fundraise. And it's not something I think I have had a lot of experience or I'm skilled in. But the the funding for the work that we do has decreased dramatically. I think we're facing that a lot more in the future. And I think that's really challenging for us. And it sort of adds this layer of stress where you're like, oh, I could lose a staff member. We don't know if we can fund our work for another year. Like that sort of anxiety doesn't help when you're already working in a field where there's a lot of really critical deadlines and priorities. Um, so that's where I wish I could definitely not think about that. <laughs> yeah, that that's a really, that's a great point. And that's a definitely um, a great challenge um, of the work that, that, that many of us are doing. What other challenges can you identify about the work that you're doing, immigrants' work right now, Vols's work? Are there other sort of challenges that you see as the most immediate or even long-term that, that your work is facing? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it earlier, there's just not enough hours in the day. Yep. So yep. Uh, on a personal level, I think self-care, making sure my staff and I and my colleagues in the field are not on overdrive all the time that we can sustain our efforts in the long haul. Um, I think that, you know, we're, we're t- all talking about breathing more and all these different things, but I, I, I do, you know, you, you're reading articles about therapists who are getting an uptick in just general anxiety across the country. And if you're on the front lines of this fight to try to, you know, preserve the rights of individuals who are, you know, really, you know, disenfranchised, um, I think that that is definitely increasing our anxiety. A lot of people that are in this work are usually empathetic or, you know, are somehow, you know, putting themselves emotionally out there a lot. And so I think that's a personal challenge that I'm trying to be really mindful of and make sure that, you know, we're not going to burn out. (laughs) Because I do see, I've seen a lot of colleagues in the last 10 years that do this work on overdrive for a couple years, and then they need to take a year off and drive across the country. And they're not, you know what I mean? Like they're just, they have to step away. And we need everybody to be, you know, taking care of themselves and like balancing all of those things. In terms of the work, um, getting a sustained commitment from people to take on the lower um, priority cases sometimes in a weird way. Like, I think you see a huge push uh, when something is in the news. Um, You know, when you see that picture, you know, that heartbreaking picture of a certain, you know, demographic or some sort of issue, everybody wants to volunteer and do that stuff. And I think it, it tips this balance where everyone that wants to do pro bono wants to go to JFK or everybody wants to work on um, this type of refugee for a few months, right? And then you flash forward a year later and nobody wants to do those cases anymore because they've reached what they call a saturation point. And so 
I think that, you know, we're looking at trying to serve the needs of a community that is literally under siege on a daily basis for the last month. And it feels like a lot longer already. And so to me, the harder work is really getting people to sign on to doing maybe complex cases or cases that take a long time, but that are not the high profile cases that don't necessarily seem directly connected to the hot pro bono thing that's happening in this moment. And to really think through that. And I know some of the pro bono partners that we have, you know, they're, they're managing those programs at their firms. And I know that we can have those conversations and that they are our partners. And I know a colleague of mine, um, I don't know if I should name firms, but um, Simpson Thatcher, you know, she was inundated with, you know, lawyers who wanted to volunteer at certain places. She's like, you know, we still have this other work. We have these cases that we want to place at these other nonprofits. And to me, taking any kind of case right now, especially if you don't have a deep expertise in an area that you know, would require you to kind of be trained by a nonprofit and that would be an investment in those resources. Taking a case that you can watch an online training through Pro Bono Net or some other vehicle, like through a nonprofit you're connected to, um, and sort of do that background work yourself and say, hey, you know, I've done an asylum case a few years ago or I've done a VAWA case or a U case or whatever the area of law is and just helping the day-to-day person that still needs help. Those needs have not changed. And every person, especially in immigration, if we can move more people to security with their immigration status, that is one less person that might be at risk of removal. And so I think that's a challenge to have those conversations and really ensure that the interest and the amazing effort to coordinate all those resources are sort of spread out so that they are not all focused in just one area that's of the moment. That is a great point. And I think that's a conversation that our pro bono community has regularly, right? How do we Mm -hmm. balance the sexy (laughs) and the Mm -hmm. trendy and the trendy, the kind of matter of the moment with just for a lack of a better term, the bread and butter sort of daily needs of human beings because humans are in right. trends. <laughs> they're, they're people. Um, right. And, and we have to work on that so that it isn't an either or, but an and, and. <laughs> yes, we can do both. We can do it all. You touched on this a little bit, but what have you found works best to engage pro bono lawyers? What, what are your most successful pitches? If I can do some sort of training or presentation to lawyers where I can share relatable stories about the impact of their work, um, I've often, I've been very lucky in some cases, I've often had more interest in volunteer, from volunteers than I've had cases to place. Um, And I've been trying to balance that by reaching out to my colleagues at nonprofits and saying, hey, you know, I have a bunch of pro bono lawyers who want to take some SIDGE cases and we have capacity to mentor them. Do you have some that you haven't been able to place or you haven't even had time to think about? And so we're trying to coordinate behind the scenes to do that. So I think when I can share the stories of those cases, that's often been really helpful. And the support of pro bono counsel to promote those opportunities or projects has been very effective because they're really sort of the gatekeepers, you know, at their firms. But another 
I think, really motivating experiences. I know that, you know, we partner with a firm and a couple of firms and our board members are partners at those firms. And they themselves have popped in and said hello during my training (laughs) or come to one of the presentations and talked about why our organization or this project is important to them. So I think firms where the partners themselves do pro bono or involved in pro bono and talk about the value of it. John Kiernan from Deborah Voice is an excellent example of having shown a lifelong commitment to pro bono. He teaches a course that talks about that. He's now, you know, um, the New York City Bar Association president, you know, like, so I think that firms that really incorporate pro bono into the firm culture where it's not just you know, a requirement that associates have to find time to do, that it's really a deep commitment from the top to the bottom and everywhere in between and supported, I think that helps incentivize and engage lawyers, that it's not something that is going to take them away from what they have to do and their commitments in the day-to-day. And I like the idea of ambassadors because it probably buoys you, your message and your being the messenger when you can stand sort of side-by-side, toe-to-toe with with someone who's had a great pro bono experience, right? And you you together are telling the story. That's a credible messenger, (laughs) you know? Right. And I mean, I know, I, I mean, we work in high schools, and so we have some really interesting interactions with some of our clients that when I talk about sharing those stories, you know, the, the day-to-day work at a firm, I'm sure, can be very exciting or very challenging, and it's not every day that one of your clients, your corporate clients, are going to fly into the room and go, hey, are you the lawyers that worked on my case? Because you guys rock. You know, that... I'm sure, has never been said by somebody who is, a, you know, a client that, you know, that's what our teenagers will say. And and I think people are drawn to the opportunity to interact in those ways and feel like their contribution is making an impact. And it doesn't have to be the big seminal class action. It can be just this individual and how that, you know, impacted their their day. And just the expression of that, I think, is very motivating. So in addition to, you know, you rock, could you <laughs> share Could you share some examples of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you, either that you've worked on or you've kind of been a part of or that you've witnessed, you know, pro bono lawyers work on? Tell some stories. Wow. Okay. There's some definitely some interesting ones. The, the, the thing about immigration law is sometimes they take a really long time. Uh, to sort themselves out. And so, you know, I, I know we worked on one case that was meaningful for me because we tried something that I think was a little bit new. Um, there was a provision that was new in the law. And so it was meaningful for me um, because we really impacted a person's life and took a little bit of a legal risk in doing that in terms of like advocating for something. Um, but we had such a strong team that was willing to do that. And so in this case, this was a family. We met the young person at a school in the Bronx, and they had actually entered with a visa that doesn't even exist anymore, like a decade prior. And while they were waiting for their paperwork to finalize, and this was an old law that allowed, you know, because the process took such a long time, there was a special visa that allowed you to come in and sort of wait your time after you've already been waiting for two years. And during that period of time, the 
the sponsor husband petitioner died unexpectedly. And that automatically revoked this case. And so this mother and son should have theoretically left and gone back to the country that they were, you know, citizens of, but, you know, they had just undergone this trauma and they did not speak English. They didn't have access to any lawyers. And we met them, you know, several years after the fact where they had actually been defrauded by someone who filed this very bare bones application. At least it wasn't damaging, but it was not going to result in anything positive. And once we reviewed all the documentation, we saw that it hadn't been denied. It was just sort of in this no man's land of like adjudication. And so we started to really put together a better application and we sought something called humanitarian reinstatement. And when we did that, there were some provisions that had been pending um, a regulation that had a sort of gray area. And this is where lawyers can really use their skills to identify ways to advocate when there is a new provision or a new area of law and shape how that law is going to be applied. And so long story short, we were able to help this family reinstate this visa that was automatically revoked and allow them to obtain permanent residence and not have to leave after, you know, being in here for, you know, a decade um, and having sort of been living in fear this whole time. Um, And so that was a very meaningful early case for me because I really saw um, how, you know, a firm that may not have that expertise in a certain area, but had the resources and the interest in supporting this case could work with myself that where I don't have a large staff and it would have been very difficult for me to devote all my time into working on this case and how we can come together and correct this really egregious result of very unfair laws. I think it's a great example, too, of how smart lawyers can figure things out <laughs> and make <laughs> a difference, right? Just you don't have to necessarily have immense background and experience. You're smart. And maybe coming at it at a new angle is, is actually a benefit. And then, it can be, yeah. you know, they have your expertise in mentoring. So it's it's a dynamite combination. I, I think that's a, that's a great story yeah. to share. I mean, I, to me, that was a meaningful case. And, and I remember getting an invitation to this young man's, like, performance um in a in his school band like after he got his green card and it just you know there's a lot of things that I enjoy about the work that I do uh, my favorite is actually looking at everyone's baby pictures <laughs> yeah. Yeah. old passports um it's just like this weird little highlight of my day often <laughs> but just hearing from people who you've worked with and, you know, maybe you hear from them a few months later or a year later or five years later and they share a little moment in their lives. And it's not an email or a communication that's filled with stress or worry. It's just like, hey, I'm doing this thing now and or I'm going on this trip or I'm studying abroad and I never thought I could do that. And that, that that's a meaningful result of the work that we're doing. And it's really positive and makes me want to try to ensure that more and more people can have those stories to share. So we've danced around this a little bit, but I wanted to ask, 
what if anything has changed about your work since the election? And I should say that we're taping this on the 22nd of February, so it's completely possible that events and news will have passed this by. Even, since, even today, yes, yeah. as we speak, there yep. could be a new executive yep. order yep. or some other, you know, I've been calling it a kick to the gut on a daily basis yep. um, in terms of what we as lawyers have come to see um, as the rule of law and a respect for due process. You know, I know that there are challenges and, you know, this has been an ongoing struggle to ensure that all people have a fair experience with the legal system. And, you know, I do think that in terms of how the laws are targeting particularly the population that I work with, it feels like everything has changed um, in some ways. Things that I thought I could rely on or know or have learned in the last decade have sort of been shaken upside down. When you see a tweet storm between the president and against the judiciary and the challenges that has to the fabric of what makes this country amazing, that to me is very demoralizing. And that's sort of the broad picture of, of what this work means right now for anyone that cares about the law. And I'm assuming most lawyers <laughs> care about the rule of law and want to preserve those protections and to see such a flagrant disregard for what those rights mean to people. And we're not even talking about the everyday you know, abuses that people face or misinformation or unfairness that really, really happen. So I feel like we have to be super, super vigilant in terms of how we are looking at how every executive order, every memo, what's happening in Congress in terms of funding. There's just no area that we cannot be on top of or cognizant on. So in terms of just sheer volume and sheer amount of changes that have happened or are trying to be implemented in such a short time, it's it's really a shock to the system. And so that's sort of why I was touching on the self-care part of it. And I do think that we're really... The other thing that I'm seeing, though, is a huge effort to collaborate and develop coalitions across broad groups that you never saw weighing in on these issues in in a way. So that that is, you know, encouraging, but it does speak to the profound changes that are happening in in how we are utilizing and how how the law is being used to target people who I think are often mischaracterized. If you had a crystal ball, like where, what do you think is going to happen? Where do you think this is going for the next six months, year, sort of forward? And what do you think your work will look like? That's a question I've been thinking a lot about. And I spent a few months, and initially I, re, I, I spent time contacting every client that we've had that sort of we felt could be a little bit more vulnerable under the new administration right after the election. So we sort of went in overdrive to get ahead of the past, right? To let everyone know, you know, whatever happens, we're starting to prepare now. And 
you know, kind of just letting everyone know, like, we've got your back. And so I think that was my first priority. And I think going forward, I need to sort of rethink our communication strategies to our clients. Because in the past, I didn't have to really go back to former clients in a way that I might now, right? Or like usually it was like we would hear from them when it was time to do a renewal for that temporary permission to stay in the country under Obama's executive order with DACA. And so, you know, when we started those projects to work on those cases, it was a new program. And so we developed relationships with our clients. We weren't involved in really mass clinics. um, And we've really been trying to educate our clients. And so we're shifting into really ramping up our Know Your Rights presentations. But I do feel like Know Your Rights presentations as in and of themselves and as standalone events are not as effective if they are not coupled with one-on-one consultations to look into the possibilities of permanent relief or knowing who to call and that you will have a lawyer that's going to stand by you if you are targeted for removal. And so I'm looking into how to ensure that the communities we serve are getting that message and that I can build up our resources to meet that need. And that's going to involve a lot of different steps. And so I've been having conversations with people determining who's doing certain areas of work, you know, because we're so such a small organization, we can't do all the things. And that's sort of been another change, you know, like this idea that we're isolated or that we have to serve all these different needs of our clients. And we've always been very active in understanding who the other players are in this field in our communities here and, you know, making appropriate referrals if we do feel other organizations might serve the needs of particular clients better than we could. You know, not every client's case is suitable for a pro bono relationship. They should be maybe at an organization that provides a more holistic approach. And so I think we're really trying to shore up all of the, you know, all of the information of all the things that our clients are asking us about, who we can direct them to to meet those needs, and what needs are most appropriate for us to do. Where's our expertise? And, you know, how do we transition into doing more defensive work? Because in the past, we've been doing more affirmative work. Um, And so that's sort of one of the things that obviously, you know, we were preparing for, but not on the level that it seems that it's going to be necessary. It's such a shifting landscape. I'll look forward to keeping in touch. And we'll we'll find out, you know, we'll check back in uh, in a few months and see where we are, see what's developed and, and see what, if any, changes we've made. And I think it's, you know, the story is continuing and ongoing. So it's very much all a work in progress for sure. Yes. Okay, so Liz, let's end with this. Who's your pro bono role model and why? And feel free to share more than one. I I think on the firm side, uh, I want to give a little shout out to Jennifer Collier Freed Frank. To me, she feels sort of like an unsung hero in many ways. I've worked with her for a number of years, and her firm took on another really interesting case that we handled for the grandmother of a student at one of our schools and she was his primary caregiver, and her son was serving in the military. And they um, helped her unravel like 30 years of immigration history and efforts to correct her status. 
Jennifer has developed a very deep knowledge of immigration law the hard way. <laughs> She's taken really complex cases over the years and has never been, it, it hasn't been sort of like a recent entree. It's been a long sustained commitment to taking difficult cases and really doing the work. And I'm really impressed with you know, her commitment to this field and to um, supporting so many organizations that do a variety of immigration cases. Um, and, you know, she's also like not the person who's like standing there and saying like, I'm an expert, you know, but she really kind of is. So she, I really admire her. It's great. That's a well-deserved tribute for sure. I mean, there's just, there is a lot, you know, there's so many um, other uh, pro bono counsel that I've had the pleasure to work with um, in my career. I, you know, I feel like if I start to name a bunch of names and I'm going to leave somebody out. That's right. All inclusive. <laughs> you know, we'll and say I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings because right. I really have learned so much from so many of them um, in a variety. You know, there's, you know, um, you know, from, it, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with just the first name that came to mind because like you know I I don't know if she's had the accolades that you know a lot of the other amazing people that have worked at a lot of these firms both with me and with other colleagues have. I think there's another pair of on the legal services side that do pro bono management at their nonprofits, and that's Annie Pineda and Adam Heinz, um, and they're at Bronx Defenders and Lisney. And they started an effort, I think a little over a year ago, to coordinate pro bono, like individuals at nonprofits that work with pro bono to help us collaborate and, and sort of learn from each other and work as a unit to sort of be a place of increasing the best practices in, in, in these relationships. And they've really shown a lot of leadership and helped me to develop my skill set and, you know, work through some of the challenges that we face in this field. And so I found like their vision to develop this collaborative between PIPA, P-I-P-B-A, um, it's sort of a New York focused group of pro bono counsel or individuals that maintain pro bono partnerships with firms. Um, and I, I really have been admiring uh, their leadership in that effort. Oh, thank you for sharing. Those are wonderful choices. And thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share what we're doing and trying to do to a wider audience. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Liz for joining us today and for all the inspiring work that she does. You can learn more about Vols by visiting their website, volsprobono.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And please take a moment to leave an iTunes review. We'd appreciate the honest feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.